Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Serious Coin, the podcast where we have rich conversations about wealth. I'm your host, Kelly Willis-Green, and today is the final episode of season three. I can't believe we have already done 18 episodes. It's been such a ride and so much fun. And I've been so encouraged by the response of our listeners. And I just want to thank you for coming back each week to listen and learn with me. We've covered so many different aspects of what it's like to live with wealth, everything from investing in art to giving money away to fascinating founder stories and the travel spots favored by the rich around the world. And there's so much more to come. So please make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss season four when it drops. Now, through all of this, I've shared that I started this podcast out of my own personal experience of coming into money through marriage several years ago. And I bring a professional perspective having over 25 years in marketing high-end wealth management. Well, several listeners and friends reached out to tell me that I should share my story with listeners. And I thought, well, I'm not going to do a monologue. But one of those people was Carolyn Cole, and she was my guest in season two. She did a super episode about family offices, how to structure them, how to manage them. If you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend it. And Carol and I were having lunch last year when she said to me, I want you to do me a favor. You've got a story to tell. You need to tell it. And I'd like to be the one to interview you. Well, it took me six months to finally say yes. I have to say I feel far more comfortable asking the questions than answering them. But ultimately, I decided that if I'm going to ask my guests to share their stories of personal wealth, then I'd better be prepared to open up about my own experience. So what we're about to hear is my story. And this is certainly the most personal episode I've done. Carolyn and I go back to the very beginning and talk about my upbringing and the money messages I received from my parents, what I learned about wealth and wealthy people working in the field, meeting my late husband and my grief following his death, and finding the new love that would change my life forever. And most importantly, why I started this podcast and why I think these conversations are so important. So now I'm turning the interview over to Carolyn. I hope you enjoy it. Well, first of all, thank you. What an honor and what a great opportunity for me to get to know you better, for your listeners to get to know you better and learn how you became who you are today, how you're able to draw these incredible stories out of people and the way that you do. So it's my turn to try to draw the story out of you about how you came to do this podcast, Sears Coin, that has been so successful and all of the individuals that you interact with have obviously had an impact on you as well. But let's start at the beginning, Kelly, like your growing up story, your parents, the original impact on you when it comes to you as the woman and person you are today, and also your interactions with money. So tell me a little bit about what type of role models you had, either with your parents, peers, and what kind of money messages you were getting as a child. My father was third generation family business. My mother was a teacher and homemaker. My parents were very frugal, lived very humbly to the extent that they spent money was mostly on experiences, which I now understand, according to research, leads to greater happiness than spending money on material goods. So that was probably a good example. I guess we were modestly affluent in that growing up, they had two recreational properties that we enjoyed and traveled on school breaks and things like that, but they always modeled frugality. In fact, I remember we usually went away spring break every year, somewhere for sun, California, Caribbean, wherever, Florida. One year before the internet, 
they would come home and there'd be a bunch of travel brochures and they said, we're going to go to Bermuda. Well, I'm packed the next day, right? And then they came and said, we've decided not to. And they were very pointed. I don't even imagine they even remember this, but I remember it. They said, we can afford to, but we've chosen not to because I don't know if it was a recession or there was some reason at the time. I don't remember what it was. And I remember being very disappointed, but I also got over it very quickly. And the fact that that message stayed with me, that you don't do things that you can't afford, has stuck with me my whole life. My parents were very debt averse. I remember when they paid off the mortgage on their principal residence. I remember they bought one of the recreational properties with cash in a recession, which also came with a message about not getting overextended, which is, I think, what the seller situation was. My dad invested with stockbrokers, they called them back then. And so he would sometimes talk about what he was investing in, you know, just at the dinner table. So I got a lot of messages around money that I think were on balance healthy. Did you ever see conflict in your household around money? No. It seemed to me that my parents were very much aligned in their views around money. I think left to their own devices, they might have been a bit different. My dad was freer with money. My mom was the more frugal one. But together, they seemed to have shared values and goals in terms of saving and building financial independence, which they did. You had just referenced that your dad used a stockbroker, as they called them back then. And then you built your career in marketing wealth management, which is a very niche and unique space. So did you know when you were younger that that was something you were going to do? Not at all. How did you evolve into that career? It was my dad and a stock tip that got me interested. I guess I was maybe 20, 21. I started investing and got very excited about it and thought, okay, I want to become a stockbroker. And I took the Canadian securities course, which at that time I think was sort of the entry point to the industry. And by the end of it, I thought, I don't know enough to manage my own money, little that I had, let alone to advise others on how they should invest. So I was working in marketing communications at the time. And I thought, why don't I take what I love to do and apply it to this industry that I've now fallen in love with? And so that's what I did. So after I finished the CSC, I researched various firms, mutual fund companies, brokerage firms, and so on. And I narrowed it down to a list of one that I wanted to work for, and that was Fidelity. They'd recently come to Canada, and I just kept knocking on their door till they hired me in marketing. And I remember the HR person joked to me that she said in the interview, I think you know more about the company than I do because I was just relentless in my research. I felt really fortunate to have landed such a great learning opportunity so early in my career with one of the best brands in financial services. I went on to use that experience as a springboard into other marketing roles across the wealth management spectrum. Everything from boutique firms to the private wealth arm of a global bank to a large independent wealth manager. Studying people and their money, I knew I'd found my calling and I thrived. It was also around this time that I fell in love and got married in 1998. Kelly, you were married previously. And when you go into that relationship with someone relatively young, did you find that you were on the same page right away when it came to finances? 
or did you have an adjustment period as a couple in that relationship? There was an adjustment period. My husband was considerably older than I was, and he had a financial history. One of the things I loved about him is that he lived very much in the moment, but financially, that's not always the best idea. So we did have to get on the same page, and ultimately we did. And it was interesting. One of the things I remember him saying to me was, gee, it's interesting how little my life has changed, even though I'm spending less and I'm saving more. It was just a matter of being mindful. That's very profound. That's a really interesting statement. My life has not changed that much when I am spending less and saving more. And unfortunately, your husband passed away and led you to, from my understanding, doing something unique through that grief experience. Are you able to maybe share a little bit of that and how you began to help others in similar situations? My husband passed away in early 2011, and he had died of cancer, which he lived with for two years. And during my grief, I was both a participant and an observer. I tend to think my way through things in life, and grief was certainly one of them. So in my case, my grief manifests itself physically, among other things. But I would wake up in the middle of the night with a racing heart in a cold sweat, and this had never happened before. And there were times I thought, am I having a heart attack? What is going on? It wasn't until I understood that that's a very common physical symptom of grief. And then I was able to say, okay, I get it. This is grief. This is normal. This too shall pass. And so I wanted to learn more about grief. I studied it. I read all I could. I attended lectures. I took a grief counseling course and then I took a grief counseling leadership course to lead grief groups for others because I thought I'm not the only one going through this and it would help me to make meaning of my experience by sharing what I'm learning. And then other people may benefit as well. So I started a blog, gave lectures and workshops for widowed women dealing with their finances. And so I grew through that and I hope helped other people as well. And in that way, you know, my husband was such an inspiration while he was alive. And in some ways, his death was also an inspiration for me. It also speaks to, in part, why I've started this podcast, because now I'm learning what it's like to step into wealth. And so it's just sort of a natural progression of the next life event I'm having that I <laughs> want to share, learn about and share. Well, it speaks about your curious nature and how you cope, you learn, you share. And now you're going through an entirely new experience in this relationship and marriage that you have, you are again learning and sharing through this podcast. So in this situation, you married someone with different financial means than you. The fact that you opened this conversational door about having a conversation of marrying into wealth and the impact is again, sharing your experiences and opening communication for people who may never have had that opportunity before. So step us through meeting your now husband and what it felt like to recognize the imbalance in financial stability, not that you're both not stable, but having more than enough. Well, I knew right from the get-go that he had been very successful in business. And so I knew that there would be a discrepancy in our net worth. And I would say also from the get-go, it was an issue in that when we first started dating, I was very determined to match him stride for stride. So 
I think our first date, he took me out to dinner. Our second date, we went out to dinner and I paid. And it went like that, back and forth, back and forth for quite some time. And he was not comfortable with it. And over time, even though I had engineered that, I wasn't comfortable with it either because I felt there's going to be a limit here as to how long I can perpetuate this. But also, in trying to be fair, I realized it wasn't fair because of the discrepancy in our income and our net worth. How did you address that? Or how did that manifest into a conversation? And how did that conversation go? Because that would be very uncomfortable. And I'm confident because I've been there in some ways myself to have that conversation. I know you have. And you are someone that I've been able to talk to about it. I don't remember who raised it first, but there have been and there continue to be conversations about it. And for a while, we would just sort of go back and forth where I would say, I don't want to give up any kind of independence or power in the relationship. And he would say, you shouldn't worry about that. That's not going to happen. And we just go back and forth and nothing would change. I think it just took time for me to feel more comfortable and relax into the relationship. And everybody has to come to their own accommodation as to what that looks like. Our first trip together, he likes to travel well, and so do I. But my idea of travel would be you stay at the four or five star hotel for a few nights and then something more modest. And for him, it's first class all the way. So who compromises? Do I try to live at his level or does he come down to mine? And I think ultimately we decided that I would pay what was commensurate with what I would typically spend and he would pick up the balance and we would travel the way he liked to travel, which was pretty nice for me. Kelly, when you were first dating and then subsequently married and recognized that there was more than enough by far, did your lifestyle change? And if it did, how did you feel about that? What happened? Well, I guess the fact that I am recording this from our flat in London, I have to say, yes, my lifestyle changed because it's not something I could have afforded to do. But I would say on balance, my lifestyle improved incrementally. My husband and I were discussing this the other night. Previously, and again, we don't spend lots and lots of money, but I think maybe to other people, it looks like more of a change. When I married my husband, I moved into his home because it was more convenient to where he was working and it was larger. He was not going to move into my home, but I loved my home. And it's funny, I had a friend and neighbor come stay with me a few weeks ago. So she saw our home and she said to me, oh, I bet you don't miss your old home. And I thought, oh, I said to her, I do. I loved my little home. It was beautiful. Every night when I walked in, it was like walking into a big hug. I was very happy there. So it might appear to others that our new home gives me some sense of happiness or joy or comfort than it does. And I think there's lots and lots of evidence out there that money does not buy happiness, right? Whatever you aspire to, when you get it, it might give you a shot of joy, happiness for a period of time, but you generally adjust to however happy you were before. I mean, that's the hedonic adaptation, isn't it? So outwardly, it might look like my lifestyle has changed more than it feels like it has to me. That said, there are always things coming out of my mouth that I thought I would never say that just are a reflection of how we live. I guess it's a bit of a mix, but because I did not create the wealth, 
And in fact, I wasn't around when my husband created his wealth. Not only do I not feel entitled to it, but I sometimes feel like a guest in my own life, which is an odd feeling. Oh, wow. That is an odd feeling. Do you struggle to give yourself permission to spend money that you know you didn't earn? Absolutely, I do. And still, you know, it shows up (laughs) for our anniversary. I was keeping within my means and I bought him a tennis warm-up jacket and a pair of shorts. He bought me a week at a spa in Spain. (laughs) Okay. You know, you weren't struggling or psychologically pushing yourself to keep up with that. And nor would he want you to. I think that's fantastic. And I think that's very healthy in my view. Well, I'm glad you say that. Oh, no, I think that's fantastic. Well, and he bought it for both of us to go. So it was really a gift for him, I think. That music you hear isn't the sound of 10,000 tiny violins, I assure you. I am very grateful for my good fortune. But we were touching on really personal anecdotes, and the conversation with Carolyn was causing me to think about how I've adjusted to my new circumstances. And honestly, I think I still am. I'm still getting comfortable with our blended finances, and I expect that's something that many couples who meet in midlife can relate to, whether there's a wealth gap or not. Carolyn wanted to dive deeper into my experience of marrying someone of greater means and any advice I had for others. It's interesting because you go back to how you were raised. Now you have this financial independence, which gives you freedom of choice. And you're in a situation where, am I less independent in this circumstance or am I becoming dependent? And those are big emotional questions especially for individuals who are marrying into wealth where there's massive family wealth behind it. Did you ever feel like someone thought you were marrying for money? Did you ever feel judged or did your friendships change in any way? No, I can't say that's the case. Maybe they did, but I tend to be slow to pick up on those things because I don't think that way. And also, you know, my husband is also from a middle-class family. And I think our values were the same and are the same. So yes, you know, he likes to travel well, but he does not live to the capacity of his means. And so our lifestyles were not as different as our balance sheets. Was that surprising for you over time? Not really, because one of the things I observed working in wealth management is that there's not a huge connection between somebody's lifestyle and somebody's balance sheet. That actually people can live quite similarly and have very different balance sheets. And also, again, growing up in a home where the means were greater than the choices that were made, I always knew that what you see on the outside is not an indication of what the financial situation is. As people accumulate wealth, we often identify whether it be our future, our freedom, sometimes our identities based on what we have worked so hard to accumulate. And then suddenly you're in a situation where the accumulation buckets are very different. Did you have a moment where you had emotions around that? Tell me how that felt. I absolutely did. I remember distinctly a time, um, it was the, I think the annual meeting with my wealth manager And I went in and my statement was there and I I looked at the number. And I had this moment where I thought, oh my gosh, so much planning, scrimping, saving, working, strategizing with him. 
on how it should be invested and how to grow it. So much effort had gone in. And yet, compared to what my husband had built, it felt so insignificant. And I had a moment where I felt lesser. Wow. I think it was just mostly, I thought, wow, all this effort, all this time, and it actually means so little in the grand scheme of things. Well, it's interesting because here you are, successful woman in your own right, and you're having a hard time describing this. So I can't imagine how others would feel in those same circumstances, male or female, coming into a relationship and going, wow, I worked and stressed and saved and stressed and saved, and now things are different. Thank you for sharing that. That is really personal. And I am confident that there will be a lot of individuals who can relate to that. I think the big thing for me, if I could share one thing, and please, the big thing for me in those moments would be when I realized that my children on their father's side would always have enough money to have post-secondary education. Like grandma and grandpa, you know, my former husband, they had ample to have that covered. But I was watching my siblings who were making sure that they could put enough money into RESPs for their kids. And I felt a little bit of, I don't want to say guilt, but I certainly acknowledge how powerful that was for me. And I did have one of my siblings bring that up at one point in time. Well, you don't have to worry about saving for your children's education the way we do. And it wasn't a resentment comment, but it was a comment. So I felt incredibly grateful that I knew my kids were going to have an education no matter what, where I had to, and all of my siblings had to pay for our own education. That was such an interesting dynamic in my brain at that time. It's just a statement of fact of your reality. Yes. And I think that we can sometimes feel guilty. I don't know if guilty is the word, but maybe uncomfortable. But I also put it in perspective that this is just a thing that happened. I'm definitely not deserving of it. I'm not special. But I also was not deserving of some of the other things that have happened in my life. So I think you can detach from it a little bit. It just is what it is. And to try to stay grateful. I mean, even just the simplest thing, a couple of weeks ago on a Monday night, we didn't feel like cooking. So we walked out to dinner at a pretty nice restaurant. And as we were walking home, I was mindful. And I said to him, you know, it's pretty crazy when you think about it that we can just walk out. We live in a nice neighborhood with a lovely restaurant and spend money on a Monday night without thinking. This is not something we had to budget for that month. Can we go out? Can we not? Order whatever we want and walk home. And he agreed. And we try to have those moments where something as simple as that. You pause. We pause. What advice would you give based on both your personal experience and having the opportunity to speak with so many people and have them be captured by your curiosity and load their information into your mind? What advice would you give to individuals who are either wealthy and are about to marry someone with an imbalance or the person who's not as wealthy and marrying? So help some of these, and, and I don't want to say younger couples, but these couples who don't know how to address this. And I bring this up because I was recently speaking with a woman and she was getting married and the future and new in-laws wanted to pay for the rehearsal dinner. 
but the rehearsal dinner was going to be probably 10 times the amount of what they would have budgeted for a normal, traditional, their lifestyle rehearsal dinner. And so she's now in a situation, do you offend them? Do you not offend them? Do you do what you really want for your dream wedding? Do you not? What would you tell people in that situation? Well, I'm going to rely on the wealth psychologist I had on in season one, Dr. Jamie Traeger-Muni. She had something that has stuck with me and I've tried to use in my own relationship. And she called it the three C's. So the first C is have the courage to have these difficult conversations. Call it out. Don't sweep it under the carpet. And then two, in having those conversations, maintain a sense of curiosity. I think we can get stuck in our own positions and assume what it's like for the other person. So by asking questions out of a posture of curiosity, what is it like for you? What would it be like if the situation were reversed? In fact, my husband and I had a conversation a couple of years ago, just I think maybe it was after my interview with Jamie, where I asked him, you know, what would it be like for you if it was reversed and we wanted to do this great thing? You had to come to me and say, can we do this? So curiosity. And then the third is just communicate, communicate, communicate. Just keep those conversations going. It's not a one-time thing. You've got to keep having them. And I would say get help if you need it. A third party who's skilled in facilitation or counseling or coaching, what have you, if those conversations are really sensitive or maybe there are multiple parties to the conversation, then I'd suggest getting help. So at what point did you decide to launch your podcast, Serious Coin? How did you come up with the concept and what launched you into this? Well, it was one of those ideas that came to me and just wouldn't go away. I find the topic of people and their money endlessly fascinating, having spent my career in it. And I think for anyone who's newly come into wealth, it can feel like a bit of a foreign land. And you might be wondering how other people have traversed it. And I think it's like any other major life transition, right? Whether you're becoming a parent for the first time or you're grieving the death of a spouse or retirement, you're sometimes asking yourself, is what I'm experiencing normal? Who's got this figured out? What can I learn from somebody else? And so this podcast really explores that and the many facets of wealth, how people spend it, enjoy it, invest it, give it away, because we don't have those conversations. And this is a place to have that conversation. There's so many podcasts about building wealth, if you've noticed. There are very, very few about having wealth and what it means to have. And so my goal is really to encourage reflection and stimulate conversations that need to be had. I mean, I think it's a lot easier for someone to go home and say, hey, honey, you know, I, I was listening to this podcast today and they were talking about such and such. And that might spur a conversation then to go home and say, we need to talk or we need to have this big conversation. And I think the first time the idea came to me was again born out of a life experience we had bought a painting and the gallery owner came to hang the painting in our home for us and over the course of hanging that painting i started asking him about his clients and how they invest in art and which comes first the money or the interest in art and you know this is sort of back and forth very casual and i thought okay, this is a conversation that shouldn't just be happening in my hallway that I think more people would be interested in. 
And then I started to think about all the other topics associated with, with wealth and kind of took it from there. And I continue to just be curious. And I think importantly for me, this is not a podcast that's being produced by a wealth management firm or professional firm. It is just me being curious and talking to people of wealth or those who advise people with wealth about topics that uh, I think people are interested in. Can you share with us two or three things that perhaps have surprised you as you've interviewed people throughout this experience? I've asked a number of people, which is more difficult, creating wealth or managing wealth? And it has surprised me that the answer has come back so far consistently that managing wealth is more difficult. And for someone like me who has not created significant wealth and came from the wealth management industry, I find it fairly astonishing because I personally would say the opposite. I had breakfast a couple of weeks ago with someone who moves in very, very high net worth circles and is high net worth. And he said, people know how to make money in their business, but people don't know how to make money with the money they've made. And I think that's exactly what some of my guests have been telling me. And so that was definitely surprising. Well, it's interesting. I've learned that over the years of supporting and helping people build their family offices. So they've had this incredible success in their business, but that's often either they started their business because they wanted to feed their family or they needed a job or they inherited it. And then when that comes to a close, that's who they were. That's what they were great at. But managing that wealth is a completely different mindset, skill set, structure. And some of the downfalls of setting up a family office are often thinking that if you're successful in the business, you will automatically be successful in your wealth management choices. Exactly. And sometimes those families learn the hard way about how that's not quite true. Any other big surprises or learnings that you can share with us? Going back to that point that one's net worth has very little to do with the choices that they may make. This season, I had a wonderful conversation with Mario Seiler, who has a company called Modern Butler, and he manages property and lifestyle management for wealthy people in LA. And some of the stories that he came up with about how people are spending their money, honestly, if I got up every morning and my sole purpose was to think about ways to spend my money, I don't think I could come up with some of the ideas. <laughs> I just don't have the imagination or the capacity. And yet, you know, their net worth may not be all that different. I mean, that was something I knew, as I said, from my career, but it's brought to bear and just how much extraordinary wealth there is in the world. What's the next step for you? You're in season three. Do you have enough ideas to do four, five, and six? Because if you don't, trust me, we've all got ideas for you. Okay, great. Keep them coming. Well, I do, I do love it when listeners send me ideas. I've acted on a couple of them. I think I'm just going to follow my curiosity. I try to be fairly circumspect about the speakers that I invite on because we're not here to sell anybody anything. So if I detect somebody wants to be a guest because they've got a, a product to sell, I, I really steer clear of that. I'm interested in talking to people who want to explore the topic openly and for the benefit of others. So I think I'll just follow my curiosity. One of the many things that I love about Sirius Coin is that you always bring us back to reality and 
you have it in perspective. This isn't a podcast about how great wealth is. This is a podcast of saying people have challenges with or without wealth. They are simply different challenges. And giving people with wealth the space to acknowledge it's okay to say that you have a problem or you're struggling or you're unhappy with someone, even though your bank account is full. And sometimes people, when their bank account is full, feel that they shouldn't express unhappiness, depression, discomfort, ailments, challenges, because they're like, well, I have money, so no one actually cares. And they're probably right about that to a large degree, but this is a podcast for people with wealth. I think it's the old Socrates line about the unexamined life. Unexamined wealth is that worth having. So I want to encourage reflection, reflection around spending and enjoying it. Are you doing that in concert with your values around giving it away? If I can inspire people to give away more of their money through some of these conversations, fantastic. Investing it better. I mean, how is that not positive? I have so many more questions, but I'm going to ask one that you ask everyone. You usually have your rapid fire questions at the end. And I would like to ask you, which is the most challenging for you? Spending, saving, investing, giving money away? You ask everyone that, but sometimes the person asking the question, there's a reason. So why do you ask it? And what would your answer be? Ooh, I think I ask it because I'm very curious about what people find easy and difficult with respect to how they handle their money. Now, I would say that all of those are sort of difficult. My husband would say that I have trouble spending money sometimes. And investing, I am a highly reliable contrary indicator. Whatever I do, you want to do the opposite. So that's why I have uh, money managers that look after that for me. But I think the most difficult actually is giving money away and not because it's hard to part with. Philanthropy is something that is very important to me, but it's hard to know where to place it. Just as it's hard to know where to invest it and which managers or funds are going to do good things with it, I think it's very hard for somebody like me who's new to it coming into this to make determinations about what charities are going to deliver the kinds of results. It's also hard to develop your focus. There's a lot of asks out there. You want to support all of them. You want to support people who are working on things that you know and people that you know and like come to you, but they don't necessarily fit your focus. So I think that entire field of giving money away, I mean, Warren Buffett has said it, and I think Elon Musk has said it, so I'm not adding anything new to the conversation. And I have fairly long history of giving money away. The dollars were smaller, but I always aim to give a, a certain percentage of my income, which we still do today. It's challenging. It was easier when I had less money. Struggling to give money away. That's a very interesting answer. And thank you for sharing that. It is a big space. There is a lot of fear about getting it wrong. Next question. Do you think money changes people? I do. I think it does. Personally, I think it's naive to think otherwise, again, going back to any other life event. Doesn't become a parent change you? Doesn't the death of a spouse change you? Maybe not right to your core, but it probably shapes you. And I do think it's a bit of a struggle, I'm speaking for me personally now, to find that balance 
between enjoying your wealth and not being seduced by it. There was an interesting article written back in 2019 in Tatler magazine, written by Helen Kerwin-Taylor, and it was about comfort addiction. And it stuck with me. Four years later, I'm, I'm remembering the theme, and it's the notion that it's very easy for us to get used to things. And our money buys us comfort, right? Comfort can be safety, privacy, avoiding lines, saving time, convenience, as well as modern comforts. And our brains are wired to adjust to new situations very easily. Then there's this comfort inflation. And at what point, again, this is kind of my, the thoughts that, that I think, I'm not speaking for others, but at what point do you lose a certain degree of resilience? Do you become soft, you know? Well, is it wrong to become soft? Is that a bad thing? I think that as we age, staying flexible in your mind, your body, your spirit is really important. So I'm not sure what the answer is. The article actually said the antidote is slow drips of discomfort. Just because we can do something, because it's easy to arrange and we can afford it, doesn't mean we should do something to make life easier, more comfortable. Great answer. You've had quite an impact on me personally and my view on that. I have always said money doesn't change people. It amplifies who they truly are. And I always use that term, change people, in the context of their core values. If you are a jerk in a low-income community or you're a jerk in a high-income community, you're still going to be that community jerk. But your perspective has really shifted my view on that because I think you're right. You are exposed to different experiences. Experience drive behaviors and thoughts and belief systems and then there is that value creep. So I want to thank you for giving me some insight into changing my perspective. I think I will probably go forward in my world with a different lens on that because of your insights. So thank you. As I talked about this notion of enjoying wealth without being seduced by it, I was reminded of an anonymous quote that I came across years ago. The two great tests of character are wealth and poverty. Maybe there's some truth to it. Because this concept of comfort inflation where indulgences become necessities, when you've adapted to luxury to the point where it's no longer luxury, could it be that the pursuit of wealth and happiness is a never-ending cycle? That the more one has, the more one desires? Professor Michael Norton of the Harvard Business School led a study of more than 2,000 high net worth individuals and they were asked how happy they were on a scale of one to 10. Then they were asked how much more money they would need to give themselves a 10 on the happiness scale. Turns out most people said they need two or three times as much money as they had to be perfectly happy. Carolyn asked me if I had any role models or people I looked up to as dealing with wealth in a healthy and balanced way. Kelly, you ask people and I, I wanna ask the question, who do you admire or can you give me an example of someone that you look to who has done it right, got it right when it comes to wealth? Yes, I always think of, he was my first guest on this podcast, actually. He's a friend, Greg Clark, who was 
the founder of College Pro Painting. And Greg is just someone who is very grounded, very balanced. He has good relationships. He still hangs out, plays hockey with his high school buddies. He seems totally unaffected by his wealth. He's very generous from a philanthropic point of view, not just financially, but also with his time and his entrepreneurial expertise, bringing that to the social sector. And at the same time, I don't know how he has time for all this, but you know, he travels extensively, travels with his adult kids. And I just look at him and as someone who's really well balanced with wealth. In fact, when my husband and I were getting married, he met his wife in midlife. And so we actually went out to dinner with them and picked their brain a little bit on how they combined their different financial situations and circumstances. And they were very helpful to us. Kelly, thank you so much for doing this. The podcasts are amazing. You have an incredible following, an incredible curiosity, which helps all of us learn. And I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to ask you a whole lot of questions. Thank you. Oh, I'm I'm so grateful to you, Carolyn. I mean, it's funny to be on this side of the table. I have new appreciation for what it's like for my guests. So hopefully that'll make me a better host in the future too. So there you go. That's my story. I hope it provides some context for this podcast and why I'm so passionate about inspiring rich conversations about wealth. This was the last episode of season three. Thank you for coming back each week to listen for your support and your enthusiastic response. I'm so glad that these topics are resonating. I've already started work on ideas for season four, but if you have any, please message me on LinkedIn. I want to thank all of my guests this season. It's been so much fun to get to know you and hear your stories. And thank you for trusting me with those. I also want to give a shout out to the people behind the scenes who've helped me produce this podcast. Katie Jensen, Marion Kumi, and Bob Ramsey. You make the show and me better. Thank you.